Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. This morning, we will conclude the fifth walk command and a major section of Paul's moral instruction in the second half of Ephesians. I'm just giving you an update of where we're going, what we're doing. Next Sunday, we are not planning to continue our study in Ephesians. Rather, uh, Daniel, Pastor Daniel and I have been talking with the elders, and uh, we think it would be good and timely to deal with issues of justice, race, and the Bible, especially thinking through a lot of the claims, a lot of the things that are being said um, from protesters, from others, trying to make sense of that. I've talked to a lot of people that I think would be blessed to help think through that and think through that biblically. So we will be taking a few weeks starting next Sunday, God willing, to focus on issues of justice, race, and the Bible. And then we will return to Paul's household code. So last week, I tried to frame how our passage that we're looking at this morning, verses 15 to 21, uh, sort of functions as a conclusion to one section of Paul's instruction, and then also bridges into the next. If you remember, Ephesians folds nicely in half, the first three chapters primarily teaching doctrine, what is, indicative verbs, Paul declaring, teaching to us what Christ has done on our behalf, what God has done for us. And then starting in chapter 4, we live in response to that. And that, that distinction is important to make. Otherwise, Christianity becomes an ethical code. Rather, because we're saved, we live differently. Because we've been adopted, because we've been made anew as creatures and creations in Christ, we live differently. The, the ethic comes out of salvation. It doesn't lead us into it. And Paul used the metaphor of walk, conducting yourself, five times in chapter 4 and 5. And we're looking at the end of the 5th. But the end of the 5th transitions into the household code, which takes up the rest of chapter 5 and the first nine verses of chapter 6. So Paul is organizing and ordering the church. This morning we're going to look at being filled with the Spirit or Spirit-filled. And then that sets the ground for us as people walking in a worthy manner, walking differently from the Gentiles, walking in love, walking as children of light, walking in wisdom, to then have spirit-filled, wise, godly homes, wives, husbands, children, parents, slaves, masters. That, that's, the, that's the movement. And then he closes the book with a call to arm ourselves for the spiritual battle going all around, around us. So, let's begin by reading Ephesians chapter 5, 15 to 21. We looked at the first half of this passage last week. We'll, God willing, finish it this morning. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence. For Christ. Lord God, we would be filled with your Spirit. We would pay careful attention to how we live and walk. 
give us the faith to receive this, the discipline and the diligence to apply this. May our walk and our words and our conduct and our hearts be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Be filled with the Spirit. A lot of uh, ink has been spilled writing about how to be filled with the Spirit. Uh, it seems to be a, something many Christians want more of. I mean, would you not want to be filled with the Spirit? I want to be filled with the Spirit. There's few topics that I think there's greater confusion on in the church. Usually, when we talk about being filled with the Spirit, what's common is a drift towards the mystical. We're talking about a Holy Spirit, something we can't see, something we can't touch. And so frequently, people have ideas that being filled with the Spirit is, is something akin to mysticism or something transcendental. I think our text this morning makes it clear it's rather mundane, in fact, in its fruit. Paul links being filled with the Spirit with walking in wisdom. There are three contrasts here in our text. We looked at the first two last week. I'll point them out to you again. The, the command, look carefully how you walk. You can almost say, really, this is the careful walk. And then three ways of saying what he means, not this, but this, not this, but this, not this, but this. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So first, we have not as unwise, but as wise. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Then, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. I don't think these are three arbitrary contrasts. I think these are three ways of getting at the same thing Paul has in mind. If that's the case, then, being filled with the Spirit is closely linked with walking in wisdom and understanding the will of the Lord. More to that point, he describes the conduct that flows out of being filled with the Spirit, and none of this is mystical or ecstatic. It's speaking to one another, singing songs, giving thanks, submitting to one another. Uh, so being filled with the Spirit is vitally important. We are to be careful and attentive to our walk to make sure the Spirit is filling us, and yet we want to inform what that category means. It's not fundamentally an emotional experience. Not that the Spirit can't give emotional experiences. But fundamentally, we want to define what it means to be filled by the Spirit and how we're filled by the Spirit by God's Word. So let's look at this in three points. We've got the prohibition, the command, and the description. First, the prohibition. Do not get drunk with wine. Now here we've got to pause first and make a couple observations. One, I believe Paul here in saying wine is speaking of all intoxicants. I don't think it would be legitimate to say, I don't get drunk with wine, I get drunk with beer or liquor. Or I don't get drunk at all. I smoke pot. The reason why I say that is in the Old Testament, and the Old Testament knows about wine and strong drink, but it also knows about wine and strong drink that are mixed with other drugs and opiates. These become the poster child for intoxicants. The Bible couldn't possibly anticipate every drug we have on the street today. And so Paul's point here is made even more clearly by the fact that the reason why to avoid and not get drunk with wine is because it produces this debauchery. Therefore, I think it's a fair conclusion that anything else that produces this debauchery is also to be cast off. So that's the first point. He's talking about wine, but I do believe he means intoxicants in general. He's not limiting his discussion 
to wine as opposed to beer or hard liquor. Um, Second, we're going to look at this prohibition. The Bible always and everywhere condemns drunkenness, but nowhere does the Bible forbid alcohol consumption. Now, interestingly enough, for most of church history, this wasn't a controversial point to make, but in the last 100, 200 years, there have been temperance movements. I want to be clear. Many godly good Christians choose on their own conscience, with their own convictions, to abstain from alcohol. I think that's a great thing. Paul talks in Romans 14. Some people observe a day to the Lord. Some people don't observe a day to the Lord. Some people eat meat. Some people don't eat meat. Some people, either due to their past or just due to uh, how they think they might be tempted or for any number of reasons, can abstain from consuming alcohol. Pleases God. That's wonderful. When we start saying, my conviction not to become your conviction, now we're moving into legalism. And the Bible nowhere condemns alcohol. In fact, it, as, as, as such. The Messianic kingdom is characterized by the abundance of wine. Listen to um, Hosea. No, it's not Hosea. Listen to Joel 3.18. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine. And the hills shall flow with milk. And all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth in the house of the Lord. Or Amos 9.13, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. What was Jesus' first miracle? They ran out of wine at a wedding celebration, and Jesus thought that was inappropriate, so he made more. So alcohol can be received as God's good gift. The Messianic kingdom is going to have it. What's forbidden is drunkenness. And we've got to make that distinction clearly. Sometimes what we want to do is the same thing the Pharisees do. We say, okay, well, if too much alcohol is a sin, better just not have any. That's a fantastic conviction for yourself. I mean, I'm dead serious. That is a fantastic conviction for yourself. That is an awful law for other people. So let's look at now what the Bible does in fact condemn. Drunkenness. Understand now the contrast. And the next thing we got to consider is how is Paul contrasting drunkenness being filled with the Spirit? Because there's clearly a contrast here. And I only have to make this point because in recent years, there have been movements of people suggesting that just as alcohol produces debauchery, being filled with the Spirit, and they talk about being drunk with the Spirit. Perhaps you've seen videos. It's nonsense. It's blasphemous. That's, the contrast is not both of these things make you loopy. The contrast is, in fact, both are capable, and here's your blank, of controlling us. Um, As someone who in my past, as an unbeliever in particular, drank excessively, as you consume more and more alcohol, you don't get the cordon off portions that are affected. It affects all of you, head to toe. It affects your speech. It affects your equilibrium, your judgment. It affects your attitude. It's it's an all-or-nothing package you can't say, well, are you drunk? Well, my left hand is, but my right hand, no, it's, it's, it, it controls you. It affects spread through you. That's the contrast. You can be filled by spirits or you can be filled by the spirit. 
And if these, these both have a tendency to control and direct all of us, the, the next plank, directing our words, our hearts, and our relationships. Why do I point those three things out? Because these are the fruit Paul shows positively being filled by the Spirit. Notice that in verse 19. Once you're filled with the Spirit, what do you do? You address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody to the Lord in your heart. It affects your words. It affects your attitude in verse 20, a thankful attitude, giving thanks. And it affects your interpersonal relationship, submitting to one another out of reverence to the Lord. This is the consequence of the Spirit filling you, not Holy Spirit drunkenness, but rather a submissive attitude to one another, a thankful attitude towards God, and, and good words coming out of our mouth. And in contrast to that, if you think about it, those who consume alcohol, those who become intoxicated, it'll affect their words, it'll affect the attitudes of their heart, and it will affect their relationships with others, right? That's the contrast. Two um, options for what will influence, direct, and control your words, your heart, your relationships. And alcohol will bear its fruit. The Holy Spirit will bear his fruit. That's, that's, the real, that's the contrast. It's what will control you, what will, what will head-to-toe affect and determine your outlook and your words and your heart. Now, Paul gives a reason for why drunkenness is forbidden, and it is that it is debauchery. Let's t- pause for a moment, take a look at some Old Testament texts that speak to this. The, the fundamental notion of, of drunkenness, what makes drunkenness wrong, or maybe even a way of telling if somebody's reached drunkenness, that they act shamefully. That's the idea. It is shameful. It produces shameful and not holy behavior. Very first reference to drunkenness in the Old Testament, Genesis 9, is Noah. What's he do? He gets drunk, passes out naked in his tent. His son comes in and laughs. Next example I could find is Lot. After the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, his daughters come up with a strategy to perpetuate their family tree. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar, so he lived in a cave with his two daughters. The mentality being, these people came from Sodom and they got destroyed by God. If, if a local city or town was destroyed by an overt and obvious act of God, you might be a little hesitant to let the one or two survivors into your town. Maybe God's still angry at them, right? So they have to live in a cave. And the daughters are afraid no one's going to give their sons to marry us. So they come up with a perverse strategy. The firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on the earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we shall lie with him and preserve our offspring from our father. It's perverse. It's incestuous. And it hinged upon wine and drunkenness. So that the fundamental notion here of what, why is drunkenness bad, it produces shameful behavior, and it affects all aspects of our life. Let me give you a brief survey of some of the characteristics I said before to show that alcohol and drunkenness from alcohol, and I'd say intoxication from all manner of sources, produces a panoply of bad, shameful fruit. Proverbs 21, 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler. Whoever is led astray by it is not wise. So there's the attitude. It doesn't produce a thankful spirit. It produces mocking and scoffing. And does it generate peaceful submission to each other? No, you get in fights. That's what it can produce. Or Proverbs 23, 29 to 35. 
who has woe, who has sorrow, who has strife, who has complaining, who has wounds without cause, who has redness of eyes, those who tarry too long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine, do not look at wine when it is red, when it is sparkling in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things. Your heart utter perverse things. You'll be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on top of a mast. I think there's describing what's sometimes called bed spins. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. Or, regarding the mind and judgment, King Lemuel's mother, it's not for kings, O Lemuel, Proverbs 31, 4-5. It's not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of the afflicted. So it can, it can compromise your judgment, compromise your memory, right? Uh, Isaiah 5.22 says, Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drinks. There's nothing new under the sun. People who are proud that they can put down a case of beer in one night, they're, they're living in Isaiah's time, doing their equivalent. They're heroes at drinking wine. And God says, woe to those. These are not good things to aspire to. These are not good things to aspire to. I also think another reason this may be brought up here in Ephesians is we've just left the commands to leave aside corrupt talk, coarse jesting, sexual morality and impurity. These are precisely the types of things Scripture groups around um, revelries and drinking, precisely the types of sins that come out of it. In fact, the Bible even knows something of, of people using alcohol in another instance to... Uh, to take advantage of others, what we might call date rape or something like that. Um, it's in Proverbs, oh, where is it? Am I missing this? No, it's Habakkuk. There it is. Habakkuk 2, 15 to 16. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You're trying to get someone intoxicated to take advantage of them. And God says, woe to you. He's got a drink for you, he says. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show yourself uncircumcised. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come upon you and utter shame will come upon your glory. God says, I got a drink. I'm going to make you drink. It's my cup. And we could go on. The Bible is, is explicit that the consistent and pervasive fruit of drunkenness is shameful. It affects our words. It affects our actions. It affects our relationships. It affects the desires of our heart. It affects our purity. I could go on. And for that reason, we would have nothing to do with that. We have to be careful in our walk lest we slip into drunkenness. It affects every area of our life. And now we get the contrasting command. But be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. So do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So first observation. Paul presents these as mutually exclusive options. You can imagine someone saying, I know what, I'm going to do both. But Paul's presentation assumes the either or. It assumes the either or. You cannot be filled with the Spirit while you are filled with spirits, to put it simply. 
being filled with the Spirit will keep you from filling yourself with spirits. If that makes sense. It's these are either or. There's no, well, I'm going to do both. They are mutually exclusive things. And the Bible, again, in other places, assumes this. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards will inherit the kingdom of God. You can't be dominated by. Give yourself to this and think you're going to heaven. They're mutually exclusive concepts. You can worship Christ or you can worship intoxication. Choose your God. In Titus 2.5, the older women are to be pure, um, not slaves to much wine. These are problems that can creep into the church. Christians repent and deal with it. And those who prove themselves not to be Christ just continue on their way. But they're assumed to be mutually exclusive. I'll give you one other example. In, in um, Hosea 4, the Lord says this of Israel, They shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply, because they've forsaken the Lord. So here's, they've forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. Again, the assumption is you can't cherish the Lord, be faithful to the Lord, and go after these things. So Paul is assuming an absolute contrast. So just, if you've figured out some way where you've made room for you to be a drunk Christian, an intoxicated Christian, I, I would challenge you on that, that, that those cannot coexist indefinitely. You will choose your God ultimately. You will prove whose son or daughter you are ultimately in how you live in relationship to these things. So they're mutually exclusive, but we are to be filled with the Spirit. Now, this creates a conundrum to some degree, at least for me it does. My very first assignment in seminary, I get into seminary, it's hermeneutics class with Dr. Roskup, and it's this verse, and we've got to do a month-long study of it. And what's interesting is you've got two passive verbs here. Don't become drunk. Don't be drunkened, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, I know what I need to do. I know how I can be filled with alcohol. I know I can become drunk, passive. You simply consume enough intoxicants. But here, we've got a command to allow or let something to happen. You don't fill yourself with the Spirit. You are filled with the Spirit, but you must be filled with the Spirit. So how do you obey a passive command? How do you obey this command to be filled with the Spirit? You can desire the filling of the Spirit. You can pray and ask for the filling of the Spirit. But how do you obey this command? Now, I, I think this is where the context will really help us out here. So first, after looking at these are mutually exclusive fillings, what we're looking at here is, is it's to be controlled and directed by him. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 1, if you're a Christian, you already have the Holy Spirit. Okay? So this isn't a matter of the, the Spirit's initial indwelling. Look at verse, chapter 1, verse 13. In him, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Which is why this is getting back to the notion of being controlled. All of us who are in Christ, all of us who are believers, have the Holy Spirit. 
Not all of us are under the sway of the Holy Spirit as we ought to be in the way that people under the sway of alcohol are directed by it with their words, with their thoughts, with their attitudes, with their relationships. Rather, being filled with the Spirit means being directed, being guided, or here are your blanks, being controlled and directed by Him. Being controlled and directed by Him. That's why I say it's not fundamentally some ecstatic experience. It's just who's, who's controlling you? Who's directing you? Who's determining the words that will come out of your mouth? Who's, who's organizing and, and stirring up your heart? Wine is a mocker. Holy Spirit will produce thanksgiving. That's, that's the contrast. So how do, you, how do you do this? And again, some would suggest this is some sort of spiritual quest. Pursue through fasting. and per- Those can be good things. Let me just suggest to you in the context here. It's put up against these three contrasts, right? So we're to walk carefully. The three contrasts, the first, not as unwise but as wise. Second, not as foolish which is pretty similar to unwise. I mean, you almost say foolish and unwise are synonyms, right? Very similar in the first two contrasts, which makes me think all three contrasts are very similar. Therefore, not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. I'm going to suggest to you, and we'll try to test this out, that the way that you are filled by the Spirit is you do this by walking in wisdom. You do this by doing what this entire section says to do. I'm going to put it this way. How do I become filled with the Spirit? By becoming attentive and careful in my walk, setting my mind on the wisdom revealed by God. Remember last week we looked at the three times Paul talks about God's wisdom, God's wisdom in saving us and in uniting all things in Christ, God's wisdom in understanding our hope and our calling and our inheritance and the wisdom of God on display in His church to His glory. So wisdom in Ephesians is to be mindful of those truths. So you walk circumspectly thinking about mindful of those truths. You're cautious against being foolish, but you're consider- continually trying to figure out what would God have me do, which is again back to furthering his goals, his purposes according to his word. I'm going to suggest to you if you're doing that, you're filled with the Spirit. You're filled with the Spirit. Not necessarily that they're one-to-one relationship, but there's enough overlap. T- turn to chapter 6 of Ephesians. Um, the Holy Spirit and the Word of God are, are closely linked in Scripture. The Holy Spirit's weapon of choice is the Word of God. Um, look at uh, verse 17 of chapter 6. Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. What weapon does the Spirit prefer to use? The sword, the Word of God. That's the Spirit's weapon of choice. Turn over to Colossians. Colossians adds some confirmation for this as well. Very similar passage in Colossians. Okay? So I think Ephesians gives us the answer. Walk in wisdom. Walk discerning God's will. You can only do that by the direction of the Holy Spirit. And if you're able to do that, if you carry that out, you will demonstrate that you are being directed and filled by the Spirit. So Colossians 3. Okay? I want you to notice a similarity of the structure of thought. We just came out of an Ephesians 4, the put off, the put on, the renew, right? So look in um, Colossians 3, verse 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self 
this practices and we have put on the new self and be renewed in your knowledge. Paul covers all that in Ephesians 4, verses 20 through 22. Then we get down to verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands. Do you see how the flow of thought's identical to what we've just come through? In, in Ephesians, Paul says, be filled with the Spirit, and that will result in addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It will result in giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it will result in submitting to another in reverence for Christ. And he goes right into his household code. Wives, right? It's the exact same thing we see here structurally. Paul's got a similar flow of thought. Except there's a significant difference. In our passage, it's be filled with the Spirit, which results in this addressing and the singing and the teaching and the songs. It results in the thanksgiving. And here, it's the word of Christ dwelling in you richly results in teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So being filled with the Spirit and letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly bear nearly identical fruit, which means there's a strong correlation between the two, which, which reinforces the point I'm making from Ephesians. How does one become filled with the Spirit? By walking circumspectly and attentively with your mind on God's revealed wisdom, avoiding folly and constantly trying to determine what God would have you do, and by avoiding all other things that might dominate or control your mind and life, intoxicants. That's, that's how. Which makes this rather mundane as opposed to mystical. Like walk in wisdom. Be mindful of what you're doing. Be careful and attentive. Avoid folly. Consider what God wants you to do. Don't get drunk. Be filled with the Spirit. That's how, I believe. Um, By walking in wisdom. Which brings us then to the conduct of those filled by the Spirit. We've got to move quickly here. Um, Paul gives three groupings of fruit that this bears. This is again what, what transitions into our next section of the book, The Household Code. Because again, what are the hallmarks of one filled by the Spirit? It's not someone speaking in another language. That that can be the the fruit of the Spirit in in Acts. It happens. But it's not the giveaway hallmark of being filled with the Spirit. It's not being caught up in ecstasies to the third heaven. The Spirit can do that. The fruit of the Spirit is we are thankful people. we got people who like to sing and speak God's word to each other. And we got people who like to submit to each other. Prefer each other. That's the fruit of the Spirit. That's filled, being filled by the Spirit. What does a Spirit-filled person look like? It looks like verses 19 to 21. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's what being filled with the Spirit looks like. And then that logic carries into the household code. What does a Spirit-filled wife look like? You don't check to her Spotify playlist for praise songs. You check to her obedience and submission to her husband. What does a Spirit-filled husband look like? He looks like someone willing to die and give himself up daily for his wife that she might be purified by the Word of God. What does Spirit-filled children look like? 
They honor and obey their parents. What do spirit-filled fathers look like? They disciple their children, and on and on and on it goes. That's, that's the mark of the Spirit. That's the fruit that the Spirit bears. That's what spirit-filled lives look like. So Paul's describing it here in broad terms. He'll get more narrow as we move through this chapter. So first, being filled with the Spirit will lead you to speaking to one another. Speaking to one another. Now there actually are three participles here in verse 19. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord of your heart. I think the second two are unpacking the first. Primarily because you don't speak or address psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So I think he's saying using your mouths to speak these things to one another through singing, through making melody in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, by which I think he means a wide range of music. This is what stops the prohibition of just psalms or just one certain type. There's all sorts of songs that God has given the church, and we speak to one another. And and this again ties back to Paul's great vision for the growth of the church. Turn back to chapter 4. What's the whole thing about? What's the the hokey pokey for the church? It's chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. How does the church grow? It's not through programs. The church grows through the body, each and every member, speaking the truth in love to each other. Sometimes it's the truth of encouragement. Sometimes it's the truth of instruction. Sometimes it's the truth of rebuke. But we speak the truth and love to each other. How does evangelism happen? You speak the truth and love to your neighbor. Virtually everything of importance that you and I have to do on earth has to ties around speaking the truth and love. And here the first sign or fruit of being filled by the Spirit is our words. It may be mundane, but it's of huge importance. What, what, how do you speak to others? What, what words come out of your mouth? Well, we've already addressed corrupt bad words. Here it's the positive words. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, God's word, speaking to one another. He probably has in view here the worship service, what we're doing when we gather together. Certainly we've been singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs this morning. And coming from a sincere heart, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. Wine is a mocker. Holy Spirit creates this melodious song sung to the Lord. It affects our words, speaking to one another. Point B, giving thanks. Giving thanks. Always and for everything. And again, this ties in with what we've just talked about with sexual immorality a few weeks ago. Look back to uh, chapter 5, verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, what? Let there be thanksgiving. And we saw back then that the antithesis of that type of crude locker room humor was a thankful heart. It suggests that that type of language comes from discontent, coveting, desiring. Here, being filled with the Spirit produces that thankfulness. You want to check how you're doing with being filled with the Spirit? First, we can, you could check how much do I enjoy, how natural is it for me to engage in song and singing and speaking truth to my neighbor. Second, how thankful am I? Do I tend to grumble and complain or give thanks? Notice the language here is, is explicit and, and covers all scenarios, right? 
giving thanks always and for everything. I'm pretty sure nothing is excluded here. No time, no event, no sequence, no situation. Always and for everything. Um, if, if you try hard enough, you can find something to be thankful for. My wife was, was telling me that Daniel's family would play a game sometimes. They'd take strange things and wrap them up and give them to each other. Am I getting this right, Daniel? The thankful, being thankful? Okay. <laughs> And so you try to find, like, you give someone a roll of toilet paper. You, you, the challenge was to train the kids, how do, you, how do you become thankful? And I believe either Amy or Daniel gave the other a, a soiled diaper. To which the response was, I am so thankful I didn't have to change that. <laughs> you can find something to be thankful for, even in difficulty, right? I'm thankful the Lord hasn't abandoned me here. I'm thankful that there are promises of God that remain yeah, a spirit-filled person, even in intense suffering and sorrow, when they get the diagnosis that's terrifying, when they, when they get the news of the car crash, which takes a loved one, can still find things to be thankful for in those situations. And that is the fruit and the work of the Spirit, being thankful to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, submitting to one another. Submitting to another. Now, there is some dis- debate here even over the text of the Greek New Testament, whether or not this starts the next section. Some of your Bibles may even have verse 21, the beginning of the next paragraph. It is possible. I I think it makes the most sense this way. It's not going to make much difference either way. Either the end example of the Holy Spirit's filling is the body submitting to itself, or Paul starts the next section saying submit to each other. Either way, it introduces the household code. Either way, it's not terribly different, but your Bible translations might be different here. Now, when it's used in general, the verb to submit, place yourself under, hupotasso, to order yourself under another person. The clear implication is their authority. The clear implication is it leads to obedience. It's, 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 this is the verb that is assumed in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Literally, just wives to your own husbands. See, when we submit to each other, it's going to look differently in different cases. A wife's submission to her husband models the church's submission to Christ. The sense in which a husband submits himself to his wife is he's willing to die for her. He's willing to suffer for her. He's willing, like Christ submitted himself to death on behalf of the church. The way children submit to their parents, they obey them. The way parents submit to their children, they they submit themselves to them. They find the time to teach and train them, and so on. But we're to be doing this. And as I look at you guys sitting six feet apart, some of you with masks on, that's another way you guys are submitting to each other. We, we could grumble about these things. We could complain about these things. We could, I won't submit. I will exercise my rights. And yes, we've seen you. You're very impressive. Or we can submit gladly out of the heart. Christ didn't hold on to his rights. He submitted himself. And we can serve each other. Or we can pursue our own interests. But here, the mark of being filled with the Spirit is a willingness to submit ourselves to each other, to prefer each other, to serve each other out of reverence for Christ. Listen to Matthew 20, verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The example we have of our Lord is the one deserving most glory, most honor, 
had the most rights, the most privilege. And he didn't say, give me what's mine. He took on the form of a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He, he surrendered his rights to serve others. And a mark of the Holy Spirit is a body willing to do that, us being willing to do that for each other. Um, Philippians 2.3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. When you factor that in with what just came before, we're submitting to each other, and we're not grumbling about it. We're giving thanks doing it. Well, I thought it was only fitting, given this text, that we sing a song in preparation for the Lord's table. Um, I'm going to call the worship team up. And we can take this time, even while we sing, to examine our hearts, to examine our minds as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's table. Uh, let, let us be circumspect and diligent. Let us walk in the Spirit, in thankfulness, submission, and spiritual song.